about it. If you have your Bibles, we're going to Revelation chapter 3. I don't often get to preach on a Sunday night. Uh, I was with poor kids up in children's church, put up with me this morning for the once a year pastor's visit to children's church. And so I am ministering this evening. Amen. We're going to Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> I have preached some of the components of this message before, but I have very much felt the Lord directing me uh, in this direction again, which is a combination of what I feel in the Holy Ghost, but also uh, also confirmed by conversations I've had with some of our brethren before in the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, when a preacher prepares a message, the first person who hears that message is himself or herself, as the case may be. If you take the responsibility and the calling of ministry seriously, the message must always stop first at the place of self-examination. And we must consider ourselves in light of what God is speaking to us about before we deliver it to a congregation, before we deliver it in a setting of a service like it is today. And while all messages need to be heard by the preacher first, it's understood that there are some messages that will be felt by the preacher more than others. For example, if I was teaching about the crucial importance of baptism in Jesus' name, I believe that very strongly, but I've already been baptized in Jesus' name. So I'm not probably going to be dealt with about being, needing to be baptized. But this message tonight is one of those messages that the Lord has spent time with me on the potter's wheel about in recent weeks, and I believe he wants to speak to us tonight. Revelation chapter 3. I want to read two verses, verses 15 and 16. <clears throat> Scripture says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, a bit of an emphasis there, I will spew thee or vomit thee out of my mouth. Now, some of us are very familiar with this portion of the word of the Lord, others maybe not so much. But the book of Revelation, uh, which was written by the Apostle John under the direction and the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, deals a lot with end time events. And in the first two to three, well the first three chapters, John is instructed to write letters to seven churches of what is called seven churches of Asia. Many of them today would be found in what we know as Turkey in the modern day. And each of those churches received a letter, and in that letter it was effectively a report card. The Lord was telling them, this is where you're at, these are the things that are good, these are the areas of concern, these are the things you need to address, and this is what will happen if you don't, and this is what will happen if you do. That was kind of the the synopsis, if you like, of each of the letters that was written to the seven churches. And for your own interest's sake, I would encourage you to read the first two or three chapters of Revelation and look at the meanings of the, the names of those locations because that's relevant to what was written. Um, but this church in particular that these two verses were written to was a church that was found in a place called Laodicea. And Laodicea simply means laity rules or the church was ruled by the people. And of the seven report cards that were given, Laodicea did the baddest. They got the worst report card 
out of all seven of the churches. They are definitely, as every church was, given hope that if they would repent, that God would restore, he would heal, he would do what only God can do. And that's a, a wonderful statement of the grace of God. But this church was not in a good way. And so with those two verses as my platform, I'm ministering tonight about the toxic nature of comfortable warmth. The toxic nature of comfortable warmth. We have often assumed, some of us at least, from this passage that to be hot in these verses is a reference to zeal, to passion, to fervor for the kingdom of God, to reach the lost, or as we would, uh, I think it's something that Pentecostals have probably coined the phrase of, to be on fire for God. And while that is perhaps an acceptable application, the concept of heat and fire in the New Testament is more commonly associated with the function of purification and of the consuming or the burning up of things that ought not to be in our lives. So when we read the report card of Laodicea, the question we must ask is, what is so wrong with being warm? What is so wrong with being lukewarm? Surely it's easier to get something to be hot if it's already warm. Now you take that, that food out of the fridge and it's been there for a couple of days and it's cold all the way through. It takes a little bit more effort to get heat back through that food than something that's just cooled on the stove. And warmth is often the residue of something that was hot. It's the lingering effects of when the fire has died down or even gone out. And I'm not getting into food science tonight, but when you are cooking, lukewarm is a temperature range, particularly with fresh foods such as meat and dairy. And in that temperature range, bacteria and other corrupting agents can very easily multiply and influence food. That's why we have fridges in our houses. Warmth allows the rapid growth of microscopic organisms that not only cause the food to become spoiled, but when it reaches a certain point, it can actually make it toxic to people who partake in it or are influenced by it. If you've ever eaten bad fish or prawns that were maybe kept a little longer than they should be. You may have fond memories of how that impacted your digestive system. And when food is kept in either a very cold or a hot environment, the influence of bacteria is greatly restricted. It's minimized, sometimes almost eliminated. And those elements that are ever present in the environment cannot develop when they are under strict temperature controls. You know, on several occasions, I've, the Lord's been very good to me in my life and allowed me to travel and minister in a wide variety of places. And on quite a number of occasions, I've traveled to very remote areas in Indonesia. Indonesia is so many islands, and while it has some big populated places, I've been blessed to go to some very far-out places that very few people have even heard of. And when you go to those places, there's usually not a huge amount of options for what you can have to eat. There's no McDonald's, no KFC, no pizza, none of those places. And, and in fact, what you and I would consider restaurants that we would recognize as restaurants are not that common. The fast food outlets are reserved for the big cities. But in the remote areas, and I can remember more than once going into 
a very small shop is probably an exaggeration, but let's, let's go with shop where we could purchase food. And I remember chicken curry being kept in a glass cabinet. No heating, no cooling. Just kept in a glass cabinet. And the weather is hot, close to 40 degrees, and the humidity is oppressive, and that chicken is just sitting there at room temperature. And as I observe that situation, all of my training is playing over in my mind about why this is a really bad idea. And the chicken should not be kept at room temperature. And I have no idea at what time the chicken arrived at room temperature. It's just there. And we've got to eat something. And God is good. And the chicken was merciful to me. And I did not suffer what some of my friends who have traveled to those parts of the world have suffered. I used to always say to people, if you'd like to lose weight, let me know. I'll bring you home a bottle of tap water from Indonesia. It'll be fast and rapid. So what, what does this have to do with Revelation chapter 3 and with us as Christians? We live in a world that is sinful, that is degenerating daily. Our environment is ungodly. And we all experience the pressure of that environment as we endeavor to live righteously and to please God. John 16 and 33, Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And Some of you may remember I taught on this, but the Greek word that is translated as tribulation here also means pressure. It means pressure and we all know what it's like to feel pressure in one form or another in a home we, we there can be tension in a home in relationships that can create a form of pressure if you've ever walked into someone's house sometimes nobody has to tell you that mum and dad have had a fight there's just something in the atmosphere it may not be measurable scientifically but it's very measurable and very tangible and you suddenly feel the need to leave a little earlier than you first planned. Students preparing for exams were at that time of year at the pointy end of the school year. Some of them are probably already done, but students preparing for exams feel a certain amount of pressure, especially those who are expected to do well. Some jobs can be very high pressure, or at least have periods of high pressure. The, the responsibility of people who perform life-saving surgery people whose lives are consumed with being air traffic controllers, who sit in towers and tell planes, sometimes dozens at a time, how not to crash into each other. There's a lot of pressure because if you make mistakes in those kind of professions, people die. So there's a lot of pressure comes with those jobs. And when an object, a physical object, surrenders or it yields and it's crushed by pressure, it is because the pressure being applied upon that object from without is greater than the pressure that is contained within the object. If you take a can of Coke or another soft drink and, and it's full and unopened, you can place it on the ground and a reasonable number of us, maybe not me, but a reasonable number of us could stand on that can and it would hold our weight. But you open that can and you drink its contents and you put that same can back on the ground and stand on it and it's instantly crushed. Because there's no longer any internal pressure that has the ability to withstand that which is being put upon it. 
It's a little gross, but it's interesting that, you know, those, those deep sea creatures, you know, those really ugly looking fish that they used to put photos of in the National Geographic, weird looking things that live way down in the bottom of the ocean. Their bodies, the way that the Lord has made them in their biological makeup, they have an internal pressure in some of their organs and even in the level of their cells that stops them from being crushed from the incredible water pressure that comes at the depths of the sea. And one of the greatest challenges that scientists face in desiring to study these kind of fish is that when they bring them to the surface, because the outward pressure is now gone, the fish basically explode. They don't actually blow up, but their internal organs almost explode internally because there's no balance of that pressure anymore. So it makes it really hard to get them to the top. To have look, You and I do not have the ability to handle the water pressure that they can handle at those depths because the pressure within our ears and in our lungs is insufficient to resist the pressure that is at the depths. And again, I, I never want to go near science or maths too much because I'll get lost very quickly, but pressure is described as force per unit area or how much force is being applied over how much space that force is being applied to. And an easy example is if, if somebody steps on your foot wearing a flat-soled shoe, the amount of pressure is spread across the sole of that shoe. Whereas if one of our ladies steps on your foot wearing a stiletto, that same amount of pressure is focused on a heel about this wide. I promise you that one's going to hurt a whole lot more. Same person, same weight, same force, but it's focused into a much narrower point. And that's why sometimes as believers we can resist the everyday pressure that the world brings against us. But then when it becomes focused, when it becomes something personal, when it's a tragedy in our family or when a loved one walks away from God or something we didn't expect happens, we can question the Word of God and our faith can begin to waver because pressure has become down and it's narrowed its attention on our situation. The world surrenders so easily to sin and is so quickly overcome by the pressure that the God of this world applies because there is nothing within them that can withstand the pressure of the world. That's why John said in 1 John 4 and 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So when you have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which is why we preach it so much, Jesus said this world is going to put pressure on you. He said, in this world you shall have tribulation, you shall have pressure. But I have overcome the world, and through overcoming the world, He filled us with His Spirit. So now, unlike before we were saved, now there is a pressure within us that He's able to push back and say, get behind me, Satan to resist temptation and to stand against the devil. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and 9, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side. Somebody say pressure. Yet not distressed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted but not forsaken. We are cast down but not destroyed. Why are we not distressed? Why are we not in despair? Why are we not destroyed? Because there's a treasure in the earthen vessel. 
there's a power source. There is a pressure that is within us that is able to withstand the pressure that is without. Jesus, through the Apostle John, did not tell us that the pressure was to a certain amount. He just said it's greater. Whatever the world has, it is greater. Whatever you face, God is able to help you to withstand it. But like the tires on your car, you need to keep an eye on your pressure. If you are lukewarm, if you are comfortable, if nobody is rocking our boat, if there isn't enough heat to generate activity or to bring around change, it's very easy to become content with mediocrity. It may be pleasant, like warm sunshine or a warm glass of milk, but it leaves us exposed to the influence of the environment. Like that meat sitting on the kitchen bench too long, we become affected by what is going on around us and the lack of inward pressure cannot resist the spirit and the attitudes that surround us and that will soon develop within us. John 14 and 30, Jesus said, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and has nothing in me. Jesus was saying the devil's coming, but he's got, there's nothing about me. There's no way he can get a grip. There's no way he can take hold. There's no way that he can influence me in any ungodly fashion. Even Pilate, who was a wicked man, when he examined Jesus, he said, I find no fault in him. There were no cracks in Jesus' armor. There were no flaws in his character. There was no sin in his heart, in his mind, but he was sinless. And so there was no point of access. But that is not so for you and me. Sorry to be really negative. Unlike Jesus, we have sinned and we have flaws And we have areas that are susceptible to the influences that are around us. James 4 and 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why does the devil flee? Is it because of us? Or is it because of who's in us? There's a big difference between the two. The context of James chapter 4 includes some pretty ungodly behavior that was common outside of the church but was not meant to be inside the church and yet it had found its way in. James wrote about fighting, about conflict, about lusting for things that we shouldn't. He wrote about immorality. He wrote to believers and he called them adulterers and adulteresses. That's pretty strong. He told them that to be the friend of the world is to be at enmity with God. That word enmity means hostility and hatred. He said that if you are the friend of the world, you are the enemy of God. Now that didn't, he, we'll get onto this a little bit more. He wasn't saying have no friends or don't go to church with you. That's not the point. The world's not the people. The world is the system. It's the, it's the philosophies. It's the thinking. It's the behavior. And if we are lukewarm, we can very easily, even subconsciously, import those things into our spirits and they begin to multiply in the comfortable warmth. And then our influence gradually becomes toxic, not just to ourselves, but to others. Everybody has influence. Turn to your neighbor and say, you have influence. Say that like you actually believe it. Nobody is actually neutral. Everybody has influence. Everybody has influence. 
in your homes, in your job, in your school, in your neighborhood, wherever it may be. Anybody you interact with, you have influence. Amen. That's why I always say when you're out in public, when you deal with somebody in retail or you deal with somebody in customer service and everything's not how you think it ought to be, be careful how you respond. Because if that person walks through that door Sunday morning, you're going to run out the back and hide so they don't see you in the kingdom of God. Be careful about your influence. So what does it mean to submit ourselves to God? It means that I place myself in His hands. I surrender my will to His will and I allow His Spirit and His fire to purify me. We must be willing to submit ourselves to the heat. We must be willing to get close enough that the heat changes us. Greater is He that is in me. Amen. Talking about warmth. See, warmth, warmth is a very personal thing. Every married couple here knows that just because you're warm, just because the heater is set just right for you and there is the perfect number of blankets on the bed, that may not be the case for your spouse. It's amazing how in one room, one person can be sweltering and the other one is freezing. It's a miracle of modern science. And while that may be fine when it comes to you and your spouse trying to work out who's going to be warm and cold in winter, it is very dangerous to set our spiritual thermostat to make us comfortable because it becomes about what I want and what I feel and what suits me. And when we become spiritually warm, it leads to a lot of self-justification. It leads to a lot of excellent reasons as to why my commitment is sufficient. Thank you very much. Spiritual warmth leads to us saying that the level I'm at spiritually is acceptable even if the Lord is calling me for more. And when we are acceptably warm spiritually, it is not surprising that we find ourselves more comfortable around the ungodly than the godly. That's a warning sign. That's a warning sign. Why do we find ourselves more comfortable? Because there is no challenge there. Nobody's holding us accountable for our speech or our actions. I'm not talking about judging one another, but you're always more careful around people that know how you should behave. We justify ourselves by observing that those people need the gospel too, and yes, they do. We need to make disciples, Brother Ron. But our effort to reach them, if we are lukewarm, is polluted by the dimmed lights of our witness. And we quickly remind those who try, you know, somebody tries to warn us, and we say, well, after all, Jesus ate with sinners. And yes, he did, and so should we. But Jesus did not sin with sinners. There's a difference between eating with sinners and sinning with sinners. So Jesus had something of an advantage in that his perfection allowed him to fellowship with everyone and be compromised by no one. Our imperfection means that we must take great care and have honesty about what happens when we share the table with those that need the gospel. Our spiritual safety must be our first priority. Yesterday morning, National Men's Ministries organized a Zoom meeting. Some of our men attended online, which was grateful to see them there. Brother Tom Trimble, who's been here before, great friend of mine, spoke to the men over Zoom. And 
as Brother Trimble always does before he preaches, he sang. And he sang a song that said, The throne of your heart is like a musical chair, but the Lord is not there anymore. Talking about the toxic nature of comfortable warmth. Weariness can lead to being lukewarm. We've got to be careful when we become weary. Offenses can lead to us being lukewarm. Being comfortably warm can cause us to become very fussy about what happens at church. Leads to criticism. Leads to complacency. It leads to the fruit of the Spirit becoming sultanas, shriveled up and dried. Every one of us is responsible for our own souls, but all of us are also responsible for our influence on our brothers and sisters. Let me take that a step further. That's spiritual and natural family. We have to ask ourselves, what is my influence on my brothers and sisters? Again, spiritually, naturally, or some of us are blessed to have both. What is my influence? You know, it is, it is so much easier to complain about somebody than it is to pray for them. The next question is, which one makes a bigger difference? It's, it's easy to say, man, they drive me nuts. That person... That sister, that brother, my parents, my uncle, my grandparents, whoever it might be, fill in the blank. It's so easy just to complain and move on. But to go to prayer and say, God, I want you to reach for that person. Lord, you see the things that they're doing. And Lord, if, if, if they're not walking with you, Lord, I want you to draw them to you. I want you to lead them to repentance. I want you to change them. And God, help me to stop whinging and complaining about them. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go back to the church at Laodicea for a moment. In his book, Revelation Unveiled, a man by the name of Dustin Abbott writes this of the church at Laodicea. The city became so wealthy that when an earthquake destroyed much of the city in AD 60, they rejected Roman aid. Who's ever turned their back on government aid? And quickly rebuilt the city out of their own treasuries. It was also a banking center and great wealth passing in and out of their clearing houses. They were both blessed and cursed by convenience. Their physical richness and convenient lifestyles had tainted their walk with God. A man writes, Laodiceans are no longer willing to make any kind of sacrifice for the gospel. They're not willing to give enough to have pleasing works. They're not willing to give any true effort for the kingdom of God. And when I was reading this commentary, on Revelation, it made me think of Israel under the reign of King Solomon. Their enemies have been subdued. David's taken care of that. They're the king of the hill. There's no threat to them. They were the only superpower at that time. It was a time of unparalleled prosperity to the fact that Solomon's wealth is still referenced today as the benchmark of excess. People, you know, there was all, this, all these books and movies throughout history of trying to find King Solomon's mines because apparently that's where all the gold was stashed. Don't think anybody's ever found them yet. But even thousands of years later, Solomon is still, not only his wisdom, but his wealth is a benchmark. But as a part of that, the fervor and the intensity and the fire upon the altar steadily cooled as Solomon, in his natural wisdom, added the worship and tolerance of other gods and practices. 
He was no longer separated in his relationships. I'm telling you, not even brother and sister Showstring could fix his married problems. He was not separated in his worship, and he rejected the voice of warning from God himself. And the toxins began to spread. The conviction of compromise was soothed with wealth and comfort. And the end of the story is a poor comparison to the beginning. The beginning was glorious, but the end was tragic. Amen. You see, not only must we take care of not becoming comfortably warm in our personal relationship with God, but also as a church. Now, we own this building, this unit. Now, I know it's Sunday night. There's not as many people here. But people give faithfully. We can pay the bills. I don't lie awake at night thinking, Lord, are we going to be able to keep the lights on at church? It's okay. The church is comfortably full on a Sunday morning. I remember, and I've often spoken of how when we moved into the church building, some of you that were here back then remember we had a little false wall across the back just trying to make it seem a bit less empty. If I could have that next slide, please, Benji. See that photo? That's the day we dedicated this church. That handsome young man with brown hair next to Brother Glass is Brother Thomas. The lady at the front is my wife, who was soon to become two people instead of one. Matthew was born not long after that. Now, in that photo, there's around about 30 people. There's a few more out of frame, I know that, from those that were here. But of around the 30 that you can see in that photo, about 15 of those were guests and visitors. Now, if we came in here on Sunday morning and 15 people showed up, we'd be like, what happened? You see, the Lord began to add to the church. He began to add people, usually when people were reached by other people. I nearly brought the photo of the Frost family getting baptized, but I thought I'd be merciful. I think Emma and Chelsea might not like me doing that, so I didn't bring that for her. Brother and Sister Frost would have liked it, but the girls, maybe not so much. (laughs) You see, now we have enough people that you can make friends. There's some cultural diversity. There's different age groups, and so you can find it, you know. It's not so crowded that there isn't somewhere to sit. We had some people squabbling over the front row tonight, but it's not so crowded that, you know, you come in, oh, there's no chairs left. It's very comfortable It's very comfortable. And we like comfort. All of us. When you go looking for a new bed or a new lounge suite, no, this one's too comfortable. I don't want this one. No, this chair, can't buy this. I'm going to fall asleep in this chair too many times. That's my kind of chair. We have a chair in our lounge room that I call my reading and sleeping chair. You look for things that are, there's something about comfort, and, and that's okay in certain applications. But, you know, when you visit small churches or you visit churches that are just starting out, like the McCallums in Broome or the Abuds in Bendigo, or you go to churches like Port Lincoln where when my wife and I go to service, the the congregation swells to six people. And you see their hunger for people to be saved and their passion to go the extra mile for the lost. It's a very convicting walk down memory lane. See, the number of lost souls increases daily. 
But as the church of the living God, we must return to an altar. We must return to offering an acceptable sacrifice. And as I said, this message has been working me over as well, so don't take it as me pointing fingers. But we have to be willing to submit ourselves to the heat of the fire again. Comfortable warmth produces apathy. It leads to soft excuses and justification of mediocrity. You know, I, I hear, let me be transparent, I hear excuses for people missing church sometimes and I smile, I want to see, there's so many things I'm thinking inside my head that I don't say because I'd like them to come back another time. But sometimes we're soft. <laughs> and the Lord, after the Lord spoke to Laodicea about vomiting them out of his mouth, he said in Revelation three seventeen and 18, he said, because thou sayest, he said, in your opinion, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. He said, that opinion of yourself, and you said, he said, you don't know that in fact you're wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. He said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Interestingly, Laodicea was apparently a place that was well known for making eye salve, for making products for helping people's eyes. See, comfortable warmth had deceived them regarding their own condition. We're rich, we've got lots of goods, we don't need anything. They were deceived by their own conditions and their own warmth. And again, Dustin Abbott, writes, Dustin Abbott writes in his commentary, perhaps the most frightening aspect of the Laodicean church's condition is that they are blind to their own need. They sit self-satisfied and content, sure that everything is under control. They are Christians after all. They rest upon their laurels as being the church, but they are lost. God is not interested, in verse 18, God is not interested in us purchasing literal gold bars. Gold is, in its literal sense, is not spoken of very favorably through the New Testament. But rather it speaks of being willing to be submitted to the refiner's fire. First Peter 1 and 7 says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The use of the word trial here doesn't simply include in its meaning just difficulty or opposition, but it includes the idea of testing, where a product is tested for its quality or its purity. That same verse in the Amplified says, so that the genuineness of your faith, which is much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested and purified by fire, may be found to result in your praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, as our faith is purified at an individual level, it must be reflected in how we look outwardly on those around us. The two cannot be separated. We cannot be satisfied with being comfortable, Brother Grant. You know, it's what happened in the book of Acts. Everybody's filled with the Holy Ghost. Thousands of people one day, a few more thousands the other day. Church is in revival. But they were comfortable. They forgot that Jesus said to them, you're going to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, 
and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. They were very happy in Jerusalem. Things were going well, and so the Lord allowed some discomfort. Ironically, the man who was the spearhead of the discomfort became the apostle to the Gentiles. Persecution came upon the church. Philip said, I'm out of here, and he went down to Samaria, and the church exploded there. It took an angel and a vision and a whole team to get Peter to open his eyes and go to Cornelius. And the Lord took the gospel to the places he told them that he wanted to take it to. But they're no different to us. Church was going great. They've gone from 120 to 3,000, another 4,000, another 5,000. The offering's great. Plenty of money to go around and help everything. People are getting the Holy Ghost like shooting fish in a barrel. We don't need to do anything else. But the Lord said, what about Samaria? What about Judea? What about the uttermost parts of the earth? And I'm not suggesting that the Lord activated Saul of Tarsus, but it's amazing that he thought he was pursuing God and God was using that to cause his church to move. In the book of Malachi, and I'm, I'm nearly done. Book of Malachi, chapter 3. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's not very complimentary when it writes to God's people. But in Malachi, chapter 3, starting at verse 1, it says, Behold, I will send my messenger prophetic and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in behold he shall come saith the Lord of hosts this prophetic talking about John the Baptist how he would come and prepare the way for Jesus but then in verse 2 it says but who may abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth who's going to be able to stand before him For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then, after this refining, after the heat has been applied and their offering is now righteous, then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. It specifically addresses the sons of Levi, and if you think that gives you a pass, you are mistaken scripturally. Levi was the priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. Every one of us, regardless of tribe or ethnicity, when we are born again of water and spirit, we are his priests to serve in his kingdom. Not to wear funny robes or to be elevated, but to be servants in the kingdom of God. And it is him, he is the one that will purify us. And it deliberately describes him as somebody who purifies silver. The heat is applied. And that which is impure rises. I can never remember some metals it rises, some it sinks. But either way, it is separated in that process and it is removed and the purity is increased and righteousness becomes an acceptable offering. He didn't just warm the silver up, but he applied the heat. See, comfortable warmth seeks out the acceptable minimum. The just enough to get by approach. But as you draw near to the altar and the heat is applied, only our best is enough. 
Wilbur Reese wrote these famous words. He said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a man or from another country or work with a migrant. He said, I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, but not the new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Jesus said, I would that thou wert hot or cold. Stand with me tonight if you would, if I could have a musician, please. I bring this word tonight to stir us, not to condemn us, but to stir us. I understand weariness. I understand complacency. I deal with those things just as much, if not more, than you do. I deal with those things. I'll be honest with you. I can go through the motions of preaching and pastoring and not necessarily be as on fire as I need to be. I've done it long enough. But it's not right. It's the toxic nature of comfortable warmth. I would that we would bow our heads, close our eyes in His presence tonight. And let the Spirit of the Lord speak to us. God, I pray. May we think about our influence. May we think about our offering. May we think about our sacrifice. May we think about how often we find ourselves at the altar. Drawing closer to the fire. Allowing the chaff to be consumed. The junk, the refuge the stuff that makes us comfortably warm. God, I pray. Lord, your servant Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, warned him of the perilous times when men would not endure sound doctrine, when men would heap unto themselves teachers having itching ears. He said these times would be perilous. But he said to Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Don't give up, Timothy. Stir up the gift that is in you. If you've been using the gift of the Spirit and it's been a long time, you need to draw nearer to the fire tonight. If you know that where you're at is not where you were, it's time to press in. If we're going to reach somebody, it's not going to be by sitting with them. It might be by eating with them. But we've got to be salt and light. We've heard about it so much lately. We've got to be salt and light. But it's got to be pure. It's got to be refined. Keep coming back to him again and again. It can't be on the outside. You know, I, in studying this afternoon, I looked up a little bit of information about fool's gold. You know, that see it in a rock, it looks like gold. You know, something about fool's gold, it cannot be refined. It cannot be refined cannot be used to make anything of any only real gold can be refined this altar is open tonight i would invite you to draw near to the fire lord i pray help me not to be comfortably warm